Welcome to Cognation. I'm your host, Rolf Nelson. And I'm Joe Hardy. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris. Dr. Carhart-Harris is the Ralph Metzner Distinguished Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, where he heads up a lab that focuses on human neuroscience and psychopharmacology. Robin is best known for his groundbreaking research on how psychedelic substances affect the brain and how they could be used as treatments for mental health issues such as depression. And for my money, Robin is simply the world's leading expert on the effects of psychedelics on the mind and brain. Robin, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Joe. Yeah, good to be with you guys. Robin, we wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about you know, your background you know, in terms of what you studied in school and, and how you got interested in, in the area that you're, you're focused on now. Sure. Gosh, school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's see now. Um, I, I wasn't particularly studious at school, but when I discovered psychology, uh, apart from apart from physical education, and yeah, that that was a topic, and I guess science as well in my teens that I really felt drawn to for the first time. A, a topic that I actually enjoyed learning about. My uh, in the UK would be uh, A levels um, uh, pre university. One of those was psychology, the other one sociology, and then chemistry. <laughs> you might see a certain combination there and how it might make sense here. But um, yeah, I, I was uh, deeply drawn to wanting to understand the mind, and then in time, drawn to understanding the brain. And um, even though there were a few missteps here and there, um, I, I was initially enrolled to do a degree in biochemistry that just didn't quite do it for me. Um, I, was, I really wanted to be learning about the brain. The things just didn't really fall in my favor. And I, I, I led towards, uh, yeah, doing that, that biochemistry degree I dropped out of and then was lucky enough to go again and did a psychology degree. And after that, um, I'd long been interested in depth psychology, so psychoanalysis, the likes of Sigmund Freud and later Carl Jung and others. Um, and so I, I was enrolled to do a master's in, I think, experimental psychology or applied psychology and um, went to the first uh, lecture um, and it wasn't fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was stats heavy and and I was really you know drawn towards the blood and guts of human nature and I noticed that there was a another master's program in psychoanalysis so I inquired about that I went to the first lecture it was on totem and taboo Freud's totem and taboo fascinating paper on the origin of human consciousness uh, a hypothesis about that um, and I was sold, and, and so I changed my master's to psychoanalysis. And, and during studying psychoanalysis, I um, was in a seminar one day, and um, was the, the topic of the seminar was um, ways to access the unconscious mind. And so we went through dreaming and bungled action, slips of the tongue, free association, even the pressure technique that Freud used early on you know, touching the forehead, now you'll remember kind of thing. 
you know, talk about priming <laughs> and uh, or inducing maybe false memory, I don't know. But uh, anyway, um, you, when you're left with those options, they just seem deeply flawed and limited. And, and so it helped explain, in a sense, why psychoanalysis was so fringe and not you know, generally regarded as science. And uh, so I asked, what about a drug? You know, if this thing exists and we're all here because maybe we have a hunch that it does exist, meaning the unconscious mind, then we need something better than, you know, dreams is the royal road. Then, you know, I, I think we can do a little better given, um, you know, errors in recollection, all the dream reports come after you wake up and memories are vague and so on. So what about a drug? And so this, you know, the seminar leader was like, oh, how interesting. And I was like, okay, um, what next? And so it sort of lingered as a thought. And as soon as I got back to my on-campus um, room, I, I looked this up um, and found Stan Groff's book, Realms of the Human Unconscious. Mm. That was a pivotal, I would say, life moment was, oh, my goodness, there is this. And, uh, you know, the subtitle of that book, Realms of the Human Unconscious Studies with LSD, I think it is, or Human Studies with LSD. And, and I was just like, oh, wow. You know? And then I, I got that book out of the library. I devoured it, probably scribbled all over it, which is <laughs> what I tend to do. And, um, yeah, and uh, which got has got me banned from, from libraries before. But... Um, something to be proud of but uh yeah that was my that that was that was a life uh, that was a pivotal moment and then you know discovering that literature i i then became very single-minded like a monomania in a sense and i i went looking for somewhere in the uk uh to do a phd on psychedelics and um through some uh google searching i found um two names that seem promising. One was David Nutt at the University of Bristol running a psychopharmacology unit. And the other one was uh, a lady, literally a, a lady, um, you know, um, sort of aristocracy, uh, Amanda Fielding of the Beckley Foundation and um, wrote to them both and, and things came together. And I did get my foot in the door to do a PhD with with David and his group. It wasn't strictly sort of entirely focused on psychedelics. It it, it was actually focused on MDMA and its impact on on the brain, on serotonin functioning, using sleep as an index of that. But it, it was you know it was um, said to me sort of implicitly that this was about me getting my foot in the door. Um, and if I bided my time, then maybe I could get to do what I really wanted to do, which was human functional brain imaging with, with psychedelics. That's how it all started for me. Interesting. So in, in that context of, of that uh, work, if you don't mind me asking, did you have uh, personal experiences with psychedelics? And, and how did that impact, if at all, your uh, interest and in, in study of, of the mm. topic? Well, it did. I, I, I left that out. Um, and my policy is to be intentionally vague on it. So if it's all right with you, yeah, of course. I'll be intentionally vague and say I had some experiences. I was a curious 
curious young man, curious teenager. And um, that curiosity, you know, drew me into an interest in, in the mind and these compounds. Yeah. No, we won't, we won't force it. We won't force your hand on this one. That's all good. That was vague. So it sort of works and you don't have to edit that out. <laughs> And I want to ma- and I want to get to the uh, a lot of evidence that you found for effectiveness of these drugs. Um, but first, I'm I'm really interested in um, the idea that you were your your study was in the area of um, psychotherapy at first. So that sort of laid some groundwork for the way that you think about these things. So I wonder if you could say something about how you conceptualize what the unconscious mind is. Is it um, do you think of it as an active agent, uh, you know, in the in the sense that, you know, Freud thinks about um, you know, the 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 mind repressing and and you know, uh, having certain defense mechanisms? Um, do you think about it as sort of the accumulation of all of the uh, the biases that we have in in everyday life, or what's your what's your conception of the unconscious, and how does that how does that play into the way that um, psychedelics might access it? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the unconscious is an umbrella construct. Uh, so that means a lot falls under it, which means that it, it's going to have a few different aspects and will, you know, with that umbrella qualifier, that it's abstract. Uh, so um, it's not as concrete and pinned down as, as other, you know, constructs and phenomena in the world. Um and maybe it, with that specific term, the unconscious, it, it's created a bit of a problem for people in terms of understanding what it is, because it's very hard and specific in saying it's about things that you're not fully conscious of. If that was true, absolutely, then we could never get to know it and we just have to give up. So it's not that. Um it's not as strict as that because the unconscious can become conscious and can impact on our thinking and behavior in ways that sure uh, we're often unconscious of. Um, and so that influence is implicit. Uh, um, and yes, you brought up repression in psychoanalysis. That would be the dynamic unconscious, the sort of pushing out of conscious awareness things that, again, a psychoanalytic term are maybe ego dystonic or um, unwelcome to the ego, to the conscious mind and mm-hmm. and um, self-schema, you know, how we think of ourselves, um, maybe injuries and, and um, adverse experiences, psychological inju- injuries and adverse experiences that we've had uh, in our life. Um, are the kind of things that can get pushed down, pushed out of conscious awareness, so repressed. So the uh, the unconscious, uh, I tend to think of as a system, and this is where we start to focus in and, and get a bit more specific and more specific to the question, how do I think of it? Um, as, a, as a system, and in Freud's um, work, you see this evolution into him referring to it as the system unconscious, the system unconscious that later became uh, what he called the it. And then in the English translation, that... I, so IT, not id? Yeah. So IT, I not ID? IT, yeah. IT, okay. The, the it, das, uh, let's see, um, 
das S in German, um, as distinct from das Ich, so the I. So Freud never used the words ego, is that maybe Greek, ancient Greek, uh, and id. He used the it and the I, I, the letter for self, um, the personal pronoun uh, I. And so people say, you know, Freud has more poetry in German and it was a little more, you could say specific and less sort of abstract. Um, so that system unconscious became the it. And that's how I think of it. I think of it as prim a primitive mode of consciousness, a system, you know, um, governed by, uh, dependent on um, a primitive mode of brain function that as we evolved as a species became, um, it remains core to who we are and what we are, but became overridden by this um, hyper-associative and analytical mode of mind that, that comes with um, what we now refer to as ego uh, and the capacity to self-reference, to have a sense of self, to have a quality of consciousness that is distinct from other species. I could commit to that claim. Um, you know, underneath that is this more primitive mode that I would um, associate with the system unconscious, uh, the functioning of, of that system. So there are other terms in psychoanalytic psychology, and more specifically Freudian metapsychology, that are relevant. And, and one of them is, um, yeah, primary process thinking, uh, which he, Freud associated with. Uh, with the dream state and other altered states. Um, and, and that mode of thinking, of cognition, is what he would associate with the system unconscious. Um, so, you know, this is where I, this is probably my favorite aspect. I, li I like a lot about psychoanalysis. I like the poetry, but I also like how Freud was thinking mechanistically. He was trained as a neurologist was a physician um, and you know trained with with um, quite an eminent uh, neurologist um, so he was kind of thinking an anatomically and mechanistically and uh, I can see that kind of undercurrent throughout his work and and I've taken quite a lot from it of course you know he was writing at the end of the 19th century you know into the early 1900s so what do we know about the brain then? Not that much. Uh, we were just starting to feel our way in the dark. One of the things you mentioned too is about dreams being a way that Freud talked about accessing the unconscious or the royal the royal road to the unconscious. Um, and another um, another perspective on what dreams are doing. Um, uh, Alan Hobson talks about dreams as being essentially the synthesis of, of random firings in the brain, that, that the origin is, is not um, an active unconscious, but uh, just a, a random process, and this gets integrated in some sort of way. Yeah, happy to comment on that. I mean, a Alan Hobson, I got to know um, uh, when I was um, in London, he befriended Carl Friston, and, um, and so I got to know him a little bit in person and 
uh, Alan Hobson was an inspiration early on for me reading popular neuroscience books. He had one called The Drug Dream Store, I think it was. Uh, does that work? Or The Dream Drug Store? Uh, maybe that works better. Um, which uh, had some playful ideas about the action of LSD in there and that maybe the LSD or the psychedelic state is like a waking dream. So, yeah, Hobson was, in a sense, giving me some stuff, some clues, but I fundamentally disagreed with him on his view of Freudian psychology. Um, you know, <laughs> And many classic. people do, I know. It's, it's, it's certainly not, it's not consensus yeah. at all. So No, it's not, and I don't think it will stand the test of time. Uh, you know, that dreams are random and have no... I, he even contradicts himself. He's written books on his own dreams that are very thick with, you know, emotion and personal significance. I, I just think, I mean, it's the classic one that, that psychoanalysis gets criticised for, which is, mm. you know, when psychoanalysis says, oh, there's something going on in in the domain of, like, denial or... Um, then it's like where you can't win and it's a tautology and of course it would claim that but i can't help but feel that a lot of that's going on with with alan uh, i know a little bit about his background and and early on i think some psychoanalytic interactions quite offended him personally mm. um so i think he has a certain personal emotional bugbear with psychoanalysis and i don't agree with the view that um if you can identify some midbrain nuclei that are involved in the processes of rapid eye movement sleep, you can then extrapolate from that to say that all dreams are meaningless noise. It just doesn't follow. Uh, well, I do uh, remember, I do remember uh, uh, it was at the Tucson Consciousness Conference one year when Alan Hobson spoke, and I think it was against Mark Solms, who yeah. is a Freudian inclined, yeah. and yeah. Um, uh, they polled the audience before and after, and I think they were swayed more by Solms than by Hobson. I think yeah. initially people started out with more of this neuroscientific, yeah. they felt it was more neuroscientific, but um, I think really were swayed a little bit more by yeah. uh, by Freudian stuff, surprisingly. I, I, rem I remember that. I wasn't there, but I, I've watched a video of that debate, and uh, yeah, I that is how it came through and you know it's a little bit like the neuro-realism sort of inferential that that sort of you know sort of cognitive fallacy in a sense that you can extrapolate from brain phenomenon to brain phenomena to mind phenomena in a one-to-one -one way that that route is often more problematic actually then in my mind, going the other way from mind phenomena or experiential phenomena to brain phenomena. Um, and so, yeah, Hobson took something neurophysiological and then projected it onto psychological statements. I think you'll get a lot of agreement from both Joe and I on that. Yeah, that, okay. that, that's a tricky thing to do. Yeah. Well, thinking about getting back to uh, psychedelics and thinking about, you know, uh, brain states and how they map to psychological states and vice versa. Um, maybe it would be good to just get your take a little bit on what are psychedelic drugs and what effects do they have on a person's psychological state? And then maybe, you know, just to tie it together a little bit about how it might be a, a window or 
a way to sure, get at yeah, some happy of this to go, unconscious. To go there, yeah. Uh, I mean, the term itself was coined in, I think, 56 or 57 by Humphrey Osmond, psychedelic, uh, conjoining two uh, ancient Greek words, psyche for soul and then delic for to reveal or make manifest. Um, and uh, 56, 57, by that time, you know, we've got mescaline and actually the the coming up with the term psychedelic happened through a really well part of the story involved a dialogue between Aldous Huxley uh, who had been turned on the British author uh, Brave New World um, had been turned on to psychedelics through mostly through Humphrey Osmond it seems Osmond provided Huxley with the mescaline that Huxley took and then wrote about in the famous essay, The Doors of Perception. Um, and uh, so um, we've got mescaline, we've got found in, you know, certain cacti, peyote and uh, San Pedro. Um, and then we have LSD, uh, psychoactive properties discovered by Albert Hoffman in 1943. And we're on the cusp, I think, of, of the discovery of psilocybin and psilocin in psilocybe mushrooms, uh, let's see, I think in the 50s, called Magic Mushrooms in a Life magazine um, article. So, you know, you have two compounds now that are thought of kind of as prototypical psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, psilocin as the active metabolite, you know, coming on the scene at more or less the same time very close in time to the term psychedelic being coined as psyche revealing, soul revealing, mind revealing. Um, and then, yeah, sure, mescaline's a little older, but made famous by Aldous Huxley's essay, again, written at a similar time. So that was a really hot period for psychedelics. I've given you some examples there of prototypical psychedelics and also the etymology of the term itself. Um, and the term itself hints at the psychological properties or phenomenology of the psychedelic experience and also will bring us to the psychodynamics of things, you know, in terms of revealing the unconscious. Because if the psyche is entirely visible, then we couldn't have a compound, an intervention, a perturbation that reveals the psyche because it should all be revealed to us you know mm. a ridiculous title book was written uh in recent years called the mind is flat that basically said there's no unconscious and and it's just nonsense and i think psychedelics uh, offer you know scientific tools to demonstrate that very clearly that the mind is far vaster uh deeper than than we otherwise realize if we only have the vantage of normal waking consciousness. So the mind certainly is not flat. Um, but uh, yeah, so so there we have some, some properties, uh, some things said that are kind of poetic, but we also have um, uh, some pharmacology that we're aware of. And I guess some clarity on the pharmacology uh, really, um, you know, took an advance in the 1980s when it was discovered. We knew for a while that these compounds hit the serotonin system. We just didn't quite know how precisely. 
But in the mid-1980s, a paper was published that plotted the relationship between the, uh, the affinity um, of a range of different candidate psychedelics for a certain serotonin receptor. At that time, it was just called the serotonin 2 receptor. In time, we realized it was the serotonin 2A receptor, because there's also a 2B, a 2C, um, but it's the 2A receptor. So the stickiness, the binding potential, the affinity for this particular serotonin receptor correlated very reliably. I'm not quite sure what the correlation coefficient is, but it's like something like 80%, like solid principle with the potency. And that rule for 2A has stuck as a solid cornerstone of the pharmacology of psychedelics. It was added to in, in the 1990s in a significant way by Franz Wollenweider when he showed that using a antagonist or a blocker of that very same receptor, the serotonin 2A receptor, could abolish a trip, a psilocybin trip. Um, and since then, similar things have been shown with um, other blockers and other psychedelics in humans and then in other animals where we have a, like a behavioral index of the animal tripping. It's a bit, bit messy, not super reliable, but they, they, they shake their heads, uh, rodents do when they're given a psychedelic and that's thought to be a readout of the psychedelic action. Um, but anyway, so we have these classic psychedelics and we add that qualifier of classic really to talk to compounds like mescaline, especially LSD and psilocin that are direct um, agonists at the serotonin 2A receptor. An agonist is a drug that stimulates the receptor as opposed to an antagonist that blocks the receptor. So I've said a few things about the about the psychology, the, the phenomenology of the psychedelic experience, revealing the psyche, revealing the soul. Talked a little about a bit about the etymology, where the term itself comes from. We talked about some examples of classic psychedelics, mescaline, LSD, psilocybin, psilocin, also DMT in ayahuasca, um, and also their pharmacology, that these are all compounds that will stimulate the serotonin to a receptor. Now, recently, people have wrongly, in my view, attempted to crisp up um, or dial in our definition of psychedelics by saying um, we can define them as serotonin to a receptor agonist. I actually think that's problematic for a few reasons. Some people think and believe they've shown that you can stimulate the 2A receptor and not produce psychedelic effects. I'm not entirely convinced of that yet. I think there might be more to the story that could explain some of the findings there. But even so, it's way too brain centric. You know, a colleague of mine said to me once, Pedro Mediano, um, computational scientist and polymath, that the, uh, the brain is only as interesting as the mind. You know, hmm. the brain is only interesting as the, as the mind. It all starts with mind and experience. That's why we're interested in psychedelics, because we know that their psychological effects are so, you know, damn interesting and weird and kind of unique uh, but if we only knew that they hit a serotonin to a receptor you know particular receptor so what so what you know it it all really comes down to the um 
to to the the experience um and so that's why i think a definition of psychedelic has to it's essential that it refers also to the phenomenology so that the phenomenology and the neuroscience are correlated but but we take the phenomenology as being primary or that's what we care about first is that well personally i i would use like a uh, two-dimensional definition um i do I do think speaking to the brain can be helpful um, uh, in terms of two A agonism, but uh, but we also know that that produces a psychological effect, an experiential effect, a subjective effect that is um, captured by the term psychedelic, psyche revealing, um, and maybe, and I know this this is of interest to Joe. Uh, we can, um, probably all of us, we can induce psychedelic states through other means. Mm, mm, Um, And so maybe, I'm I'm, I'm sort of thinking on the spot, you know, should we be so committed to say that um, there is a principal component, there's really one dimension at the core, and it is the phenomenology. Mm, I like that way of stating it, yeah. Great, yeah, so that's that's great background on, on, on psychedelics and you know, I think uh, moving that forward in time a little bit, uh, thinking about some of the recent findings and some of the work that you've done and, and your colleagues and others in the field demonstrating that there can be real benefits for some psychological disorders, you know, particularly for classic psychedelics. There's really good research now in depression. Um, you know, it's maybe not obvious that you take the perspective that you were talking about from the fifties and sixties and, you know, and, and forward that there would be such a benefit. Uh, and so it'd be useful to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what the evidence that you see today that, mm. that psychedelics may have this benefit and, and maybe a little bit also we can get into. Sure. How yeah. I mean, there, there were bits of evidence being picked up in the fifties and sixties. It's just the methods weren't, what they are today, we used uh, um, scales that weren't really scales. They were they were just sort of questions about degrees of improvement. And then over time, you know, we realized, in a sense, the science of psychomet- psychometric evaluation, standardization, and construct validation, all this stuff, um, where we get you know scales that are sort of quite well calibrated between each other and. And so we know how to measure something like depression and its improvements. Uh, but that's still a work in progress, absolutely. But at least we're, you know, quite a bit further along with our metrics than where we were in the 50s and 60s, where people were doing studies, they just weren't very good. And um, another thing that happened around the mm. 60s, I think early 60s, was that the, you know, gold standard method for assessing the efficacy um, of, a, of a medical treatment started to become established, the double-blind randomized control trial. And it, it, it happened at a time where the potential uh, adverse effects of psychedelics were being highlighted in the 60s. And psychedelics didn't fit this testing model very well. So there was a kind of perfect storm that led to people starting to think that there wasn't a compelling evidence base for psychedelic therapy. 
Now, fast forward to the present day when we have better methods, um, better uh, trial designs, and we've started to employ those in the context of uh, psychedelic therapy research. And um, difficult to know quite where to start. There was a, we call it an open label uh, trial done with psilocybin therapy for OCD published, I think in 2006. Uh, um, Francesco Moreno was first author. He doesn't always get the credit he deserves because that was the first clinical trial of the modern era. Um, we had another very impactful, um, important study by Roland Griffiths and colleagues at Hopkins in 2006 that looked in healthy volunteers. They were theology uh, students, I think. Um, uh, I think they were psychedelic naive or, or mostly, so they'd never had a psychedelic experience before. Given psilocybin, they have these profound, you know, mystical type experiences, rate those experiences as being among the most personally, personally meaningful of their entire life. And that makes a big splash. Um, and then we go into like 20, would it be 2011, something like that with Charlie Grobe publishing on psilocybin therapy for end-of-life distress. This was a placebo control study, I believe, and published in American Journal of Psychiatry. Um, small study, uh, but promising with drops in uh, depression scores and an anxiety scores in this population. Um, that gets a little glossed over as well. We tend to focus a lot on on, I suppose, the Hopkins work, but, you know, Fra Francesco Moreno and, and Charlie Grove, very important early papers there. Uh, let's see. Now, you know, I guess in my own filter bubble at Imperial College London, we published on the first trial in depression, psilocybin therapy for depression uh, in 2016. Uh, that was an open label trial. Open label means you, patients know what they're getting. There's no blinding. So design-wise, it's less rigorous than a blinded study where you don't know what you're going to get, and it could be a placebo. Um, but these can be good designs for sort of finding your feet, uh, demonstrating feasibility, demonstrating that this is safe enough to do in a very vulnerable population. That population was, they had treatment-resistant depression, so they'd failed a bunch of different treatments for their depression. Some had very severe depression. Um, and so, you know, while these days, it's only a few years on, 2023, but then, you know, 2014, 15 is when we're starting to do the work and proposing it at the time to the UK Medical Research Council as a, a grant proposal that we won. That's around 2012. It's quite a, I think it's fair to say, you know, quite a daring thing to do and, and a fair degree of uncertainty about whether indeed it was safe. You could imagine all the fear um, around psychedelics and do they induce psychotic disorders and, you know, all these concerns about the safety. Um, some, you know, modicum... <laughs> Some, some degree of concern in our minds, very genuinely, 
um, but also a serious concern in terms of IRBs, you know, the ethics committees that need to approve the study for us to even do it. Of course, the Medical Research Council in the UK, which is like the UK NIH, assessing whether they want to give half a million uh, British pounds to this study. Um, so we managed to do it. We managed to pull it off and we published the paper in 2016 with a quite a modest title um, around the, uh, I think it was assessing the feasibility of psilocybin therapy in, um, in treatment resistant depression. It might be proof of principle or something like that. So that gave people confidence, but it was also happening at the time that Hopkins and NYU were looking at depression, uh, depressive symptoms in end of life anxiety with two bigger studies that were placebo controlled that were also, I think, published in 2016 as well, albeit a few months later. And that was a that started to be like, you know, I always think of an auctioneer with his hammer. That was like, boom, we've got something <laughs> solid now. Um, not just an open label study, but the open label study was good because of the clarity on the population. This was treatment resistant depression. It's definitely everyone had depression, you know, DSM diagnosed. In the end of life anxiety work, it was a bit smudgier because not everyone necessarily met criteria for major depressive disorder coming in. But it was a, you know, but they were very well designed studies with the placebo controls. So, you know, the combination brought a real kind of you know, hammer, hammer blow of evidence. And since then, it's just been, in a sense, more of the same, but better, bigger studies um, uh, and clearer evidence. We did a trial published in 2021. Now, you know, we're getting papers into the very top journals. This is the New England Journal of Medicine, which was a double-blind randomized control trial in major depressive disorders. So not as specific as treatment-resistant depression, but more general, if you want, bog-standard depression, major depressive disorder. Let me jump in for one second. So you're, I mean, you, you brought up the issue of um, controls, and obviously it's going to be pretty easy for a, a participant to know whether they got, uh, you know, a strong dose of psilocybin or nothing, right? So uh, how does that play out? In a, a, and it's different, of course, than, say, uh, control for an SSRI because it's not obvious. It may not be as obvious to the person that they got the mm. dose. So, um, how is that? How is that typically tackled in in this research? Sure. Well, there's a, there's a few like well, myth might be a little strong, but misconceptions perhaps about things like you know SSRI trials and the integrity of blinding. So, just on that one, I think the evidence is something like eighty percent successful identification uh, okay so they do people in, in a lot of those trials really yeah, do, you it's, know, that, i would say that's the myth is that there is blinding integrity in clinical trials in double blind mm -hmm. clinical trials and all of a sudden we do psychedelic ones and the blinding integrity is is zero i would say that in the psychedelic trials the blinding integrity is very low most people can guess especially when they get the psychedelic not everyone but most mm -hmm. so sure we're at you know very poor blinding integrity. Um, there are a few tricks we can do to try and maintain that, but people should realize that blinding integrity is a universal problem, especially in psychiatric drug trials. 
So don't think that this is a special problem with psychedelics. And uh, the other thing is that when you do, you know, double blind RCTs are a game we play. Uh, that sounds a little glib and is, but it is still what it is. Like when you're unwell, you go to your clinician and seek treatment, you get the treatment and you know what it is. And so it's an active part of the treatment action that you have your expectations and, and there's transparency on what you're getting. Now, the game we play in clinical research is to try and control for a potential confounding factor that we know is very potent, which is expectancy, positive expectancy. And you can call that the placebo response. It's really positive expectations carrying a positive response. Uh, but like I said, that's part of the naturalistic phenomenon that's always there. But in the game that we play in clinical research, we're trying to, we're acknowledging that that's a thing and then trying to tease apart, yes, but what's extra? Because if we didn't do that, you would, you could sell snake oil. You could just, you could, you know, and that feels ethically problematic. Like your treatment has to be more than just that positive expectation. Even though we know the positive expectation is a massive thing, really potent, we still need something more than that. So that's why we play the game. Um, now, the question is, is the double blind RCT the only game in town uh, to address that issue? I'm, I'm not sure it is. At, at the base of all of this, is demonstrating that your treatment is more than snake oil. I know I'm being very glib in, in the language I'm using here, but you know more than just the positive expectancy action. So it's a mechanistic issue, action. It's the mechanistic action that we're trying to feel more confident about, knowing that there's a mechanistic action called the placebo response. There's a there's a thing that happens there, a process that's mechanistic that causes you to get better, even though you're getting better through the, the psychology of the positive expectations and that being wrapped up with, of course, biological changes that come with the, you know, circular causality between mind and, and brain and body. Um, but uh, so, the, so then when you realize it's a mechanistic question, you wonder whether, yes, the double-blind RCT is the only game in town to elucidate what the extra is to psychedelic therapy in terms of its mechanistic action in getting people better. So you can do mechanistic work, and that could be things like brain imaging. It could be pharmacological blocking studies. So that's an important point to make. The other one is that if you believe that you know, positive expectation is a is a major part of any treatment, which it seems to be, then you've got to assess it, you've got to measure it. So sometimes people get too stuck, in my view, on measuring the integrity of the blind, in my view, because they're very attached, in a sense, to this gold standard assessment of, uh, of you know, medical interventions, the double blind RCT. So they assess whether they assess the blinding integrity. There's a way to do that, which people haven't always done very well. But what they should also do is measure the positive expectations or just measure expectations because not all of them are positive. You can also have expectations about side effects. So you've got to do that. And I, and I can tell you, we did that. 
in our double-blind RCT, psilocybin therapy versus escalopram for depression. This paper is, uh, let's see now, has it been reviewed yet? Hasn't, it hasn't been reviewed, but it's being submitted. Uh, Balash Sigeti is the first author. We found, as in the authors on the paper, this was a very hot one. Like there was some internal debate in the team. And I think collectively this, this was a fascinating paper we put together. But, you know, in no small part because the results are fascinating. So, so I'll try and describe them briefly. We assessed uh, patients' expectations for each treatment. They didn't know what they were going to get. That's randomization. Uh, it's a coin flip, you know, 50-50 chance you get psilocybin in this trial um, or you get escitalopram. I'm just saying it. Yeah, and escitalopram yeah. is a SSRI, right? A, a typical standard kind That's of That's right, uh, yeah. So depression some people medicine. would know it as Lexapro. Um, it's a daily antidepressant uh, pill that, that you'll take every day for, you know, X number of weeks or months uh, to treat your depression. And in this particular trial, you took it every day for six weeks. You took a good dose of it as well. Um, so that was one of the arms. So at the, at the start of the trial, we asked people, what do you expect in terms of degree of improvement uh, for psilocybin, given your knowledge and expectations um, about that intervention? How effective do you think it will be? And they could do that. There'll be no change in my depression too. There'll be complete remission. Um, and they do exactly the same for escitalopram because they don't know what arm they're going to go into. We don't know what arm. It's, it's before the coin flip. So they do it for both treatments. Then, of course, you know, the coin gets flipped and, and they go into one of the arms. And then at the end of the trial, we can assess how well they've done. And we can also track back. Now, knowing what treatment they had, and look at their expectations for that treatment and see if there's a relationship, you know. Maybe if you have really high expectations for psilocybin, you're the kind of person who's done fantastically well having received psilocybin. What we found was that that wasn't true. These, these are the results now. So there was no relationship whatsoever. Yeah. In fact, directionally, it was the inverse of the usual relationship. Um, so no relationship between positive expectations of efficacy or how well the treatment's going to do. We're focusing on psilocybin here, the positive expectations for psilocybin, and actually how well you did. And like I said, directionally, it was actually in the, in the inverse direction to what you would typically expect. So meaning inflated expectations for psilocybin associated with slightly worse response. That relationship wasn't statistically significant, but it directionally, again, repeating myself, it was the opposite of what we're used to. Um, now, with escitalopram, it was exactly what we're used to. Higher expectations, better response, solid across the board for all the measures. So it was a fascinating finding because this has been a, a specter that, that sort of hangs over uh, psychedelic therapy which is people saying things like oh they're super placebos it's all placebo response there's no integrity to the blinding well then there may be very poor blinding integrity but uh now i i'm sort of willing to say 
do you really think it's compelling that psychedelics are snake oil, that there's no active action to this treatment in improving people's um, core pathology? I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And there's no compelling evidence to suggest that. And, and this particular result supports that. Now, in terms of expectations, of course, if you've never had psilocybin before, your expectations might be based on who knows what, right? Media exposure or something like that. Yeah, Michael um, Pollan's book. <laughs> right, Michael Pollan's book. Right, exactly. How to change your mind. Yeah. Um, but then you might have, I guess you might have different expectations. Maybe this is hard to say, but you might have different expectations after taking the drug, right? Your expectations about what's happening might be different than I guess you had expected. So after taking the drug, you might think, oh, initially I didn't expect anything, but now I do expect there to have something to have happened. Does it matter that it's just a, 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 an expectation before ever taking the drug or, and I guess, you know, another thing might be if, if people are more familiar with it, people, repeat users might have different expectations because they have mm -hmm. something more realistic um, to ground it to. I think that's a good point, it, and it's that expectation is a dynamic thing. It's also right. locked in a process. So, um, so you have expectation prior to any intervention, but then you receive it, and all of a sudden you have an action, and you're attributing, you know, you're, there's this complex cause, causal interaction between changing expectations, actual effects that you're perceiving. So it's just difficult to tease apart the causation once you start having some actual action as well. Yeah. So, so to, to, I guess the cleanest way to do that is you've got expectations pre any intervention. Uh, and that's, that's the result I was reporting. It is tricky stuff. But, but also, I think also, I mean, one of the, one of the things speaking in favor is the, I think, as you sort of mentioned, the effect sizes that you're, you're seeing pretty pretty large effect sizes on on a lot of these and even especially compared to standard SSRI so that yeah I think that matters and we could talk that through a little bit you know um, if you have absolute outcomes and you, you know absolute outcomes is just something like how many people in your population that you had in your trial are now in remission mm -hmm. let's imagine an extreme scenario everyone's in remission. You did an open label trial, everyone knew what they were getting. And now everyone has zero on their depressive symptom severity rating scales. Um, uh, if you're being really strict and, and faithful to the double blind RCT, you would say you can't infer that the intervention in your trial caused everyone to have absolutely zero depression now. I'm, this is a toy example, and mm -hmm. you know we don't have an example of something quite like this, but it's an extreme example to make the point. If you had fantastic absolute outcomes, do you not still have fantastic absolute outcomes? I mean, you could be left saying, "Well, this is just an example of the super snake oil effect." Um, but another part of of you would be like, "Well, you're not. We're not used to seeing everyone." Uh, hit remission these outcomes are really exceptional and there aren't many treatments out there that can work as well as this so that kind of way of thinking has come into this 
because we do look at absolute outcomes. You know, we say things about electroconvulsive therapy, very controversial intervention over, you know, the time and wrapped up with, you know, cultural associations through things like um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, but uh, if you look at absolute outcomes, very effective for reducing depressive symptom severity, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, and so you are left with people making statements in psychiatry like ECT is you know, one, if not the most effective interventions for depression. You don't say it's the best because people don't like it. It's mm. puts you into a seizure and all, all the, you know, um, other sort of side effect issues in terms of like, you know, cognitive um, negative impact on cognitive functioning and, and um, yeah, some other things. Um, but but what I'm trying to say is that we do make inferences on absolute outcomes, and and can we do that with psychedelics? Well, if if we do it about ECT uh, and we do it about other things, then maybe we, we we can make those inferences. And so, what what kind of things can we say about the absolute outcomes? Well, there have been three investigator-led studies in major depressive disorder um, that have found 70% response rates. Um, with one or two, one or two interventions at the primary endpoint, at, at the place where you stick your flag and say this is the main time since intervention, then I'll assess how effective it is. Uh, Imperial, Hopkins, and Yale have all done psilocybin therapy studies in major depressive disorder that found seventy percent plus or minus a few. Um, and this is in people with somewhat intractable depression, really difficult cases? Uh, just bog standard depression. Well, so okay. it's not treatment resistant depression. This is major depressive disorder. But typically to do a trial like this, you do have entry criteria of, of at least moderate severity depression coming in. So I think the, the fairest thing to say is this is sort of a generalized, quite a general quality of depression. Um, and then 70% response, where response is a halving, at least a halving of your um, baseline scores at that primary endpoint where you've stuck your flag, say, six weeks or three weeks or four weeks after the, after the intervention. This is where I'll assess 70%. Now, that's good as, a, as an absolute outcome. It's, a, it's quite a bit better, maybe about 20% better than what we're used to with uh, SSRI trials in depression. And it's close to what you see with ECT, actually. Um, so that's that's one thing. Now, investigator-led trials are, um, well, they don't have industry bias because they're investigator-led as opposed to like industry sponsors. So these are all people like me designing a study, yes, get getting a drug from somewhere, but not being pressured in any particular way by drug company just doing your science so those are the investigative studies that i'm talking about now drug company sponsored trials have been done in depression as well you have compass pathways have done a phase 2b study in treatment resistant depression so that's the more intractable depression um, and then you have usona who are a, a interesting sort of not-for-profit um that have published on psilocybin therapy for major depressive disorder, but not a small investigator-led study, um, a multi-site study, 
something like 100 patients in that trial. There they had different assessment criteria, stricter than the ones I've been telling you about. Their assessment of response, this is a little granular, maybe too much for your listeners, but their assessment of response required that halving of your score at every single assessment time point up to the primary endpoint. So it was quite strict. And when they did it in that stricter way, it dropped down to 50% response rates. But it's sort of, you know, what do they say? Apples and pears or apples and oranges. It wasn't quite the same test. So Mm -hmm. it's harder to compare that one. Uh, Compass, their efficacy rates were not as impressive as the investigator-led studies, maybe because it was a tougher population. Maybe the, I don't know, the quality of the therapy wasn't as good as in the investigator-led trials. Maybe its quantity was a little less. Um, And they only had one single dosing session. So there's a few reasons why I think the response and remission rates in the COMPASS trial were quite as impressive. Just a brief pause to say that if you're enjoying the podcast, please spread the word to your friends and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever you're listening on. You can contact us at cognationpodcast at gmail.com or you can check out our new YouTube channel. Just look up Cognation on YouTube. Thanks for listening. So if we get a little bit out of the out of the weeds of some of the studies, it seems like, I mean, there's been, it, it's been fairly well established by now. And I think we've cataloged a few different um, psychedelics, you know, psilocybin, LSD, DMT. And there seems to be fairly compelling evidence by now. And I think a lot, thanks to your lab and, and some other associated labs. Um, so I, I just jump in if it's all right, Rob, yeah. just, yeah, just yeah. to say, all of the studies I was referring to was psilocybin. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it was a, a bunch of people. I mean, we, we did two trials there in depression. Um, and I guess the fairest thing and the most conservative and sober thing would be to say that the early results look promising rather than rather than compelling. <laughs> Depends okay. who you ask. You know, the public think it's super compelling. I think it's very promising. Um, yeah, sorry. If, I, we, I just, if, we, if we leave it, I think that's good. I think yeah, it's no, a very that's, measured that's response. And I, I think, like yeah, you I mean, obviously don't want to get ahead of anything. But I think, you know, by now there's, you know, some general consensus that there is something going on. Absolutely. So, so I think the next step is to talk. I mean, you've done quite a bit of thinking about the mechanisms and, and thinking about uh, models that might explain what's going on. So maybe uh, you want to get into, you know, how how effectiveness of of these um, psychedelics is working yeah sure happy to and and this is of all the topics well this is a really juicy one i mean there's a few favorites but uh the actual action how does this work is probably my favorite topic and the thing that i um think about most and just to give an example as to why it's important um and it kind of comes back to that whole kind of snake oil thing a little bit. Um, you know, people use examples like um, uh, smallpox and, uh, you know, we were able to develop a effective vaccine that eradicated smallpox, um, at least in the West, through understanding its action. 
Um, and so that's why action matters. When we understand what something is, like imagine if um, uh, COVID had happened and we didn't know what the hell it was, then gosh, the, the number of deaths would have been way greater than, than they were, I think it's fair to say. Uh, if you look at past pandemics with with other viruses and how they've wiped out, you know, even vaster populations. Um, but by understanding what it is, you can then come in with a targeted intervention. Uh, um, so that's why it's so essential. And then you develop an intervention that is as on target as it can be with the least amount of off-target action, you know, where off-target can can bring in side effects and, and not bring the desired, you know, um, remediating action. So that's why it's really essential in the context of psychedelic therapy, because you need to know what's doing it. And uh, if you don't, you, you're going to be sloppy and have a lot of off-target action. Maybe some of that off-target action is expensive, or maybe it brings side effects. So it's all about like being able to dial in your medical intervention so that it really does what you want it to do with minimal, you know, not what you want it to do. <laughs> um, so that's why it matters. Uh, then we have a few ways to look at this, you know, um, and, and this is where the hypotheses come in. And I'll share some of mine that I think are shared by a lot of people in this space, not everyone, but a lot. Um, most of the people doing the human research and who have done the human research in recent years share these assumptions that I'm going to share with you, which uh, probably the main one is that this isn't about just a drug, um, a drug action. Uh, and the clue is in the name, psychedelic therapy. Uh, some people go as far as to call it psychedelic assisted therapy or even psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. In my view, that puts a little bit too much weight on the other component um, and sort of says you just have the drug that's pushing along the psychotherapy. I, I get that, but I think it's probably better better principle to think of a synergy. The one plus one equals three in this context. It's not an additive thing, but a multiplicative thing. Um, maybe, maybe three plus three, uh, it's not three plus three equals six, but three times three equals nine kind of thing. You know, you're getting more by bringing these things together. You have a drug that opens up the mind and the brain in its functioning, in their functioning in such a way that gives you a window of opportunity, but then adding in this therapy thing, you can call it psychotherapy if you want, we could call it contextual manipulation, because is, for example, music listening, which has happened throughout all of the trials. Is that psychotherapy? Well, we do have music therapy, but a bit of a stretch to say listening to music is psychotherapy. So let's call it therapy because it's less committal to you know, to one component of it, psychotherapy, sure, very important, we assume, but too much emphasis. Um, psychedelic therapy, um, yeah, that combination where making the mind and the brain more supple, more sensitive, uh, we can bring in plasticity here. And I, I would encourage people to go with a definition of plasticity, which is very generalized. 
which is close, if not right on the dictionary definition of plasticity, which if you were to look it up would read something like the ability to be shaped or molded, which is more or less synonymous with malleability. Um, so the ability to change, not change itself, but the ability to change is plasticity. We increase the ability to change and we marry that with contextual manipulation that is trying to do a few things. It's trying to coax emotional responses, um, perhaps coax, coax emotional responses with some sensory experiences like visions, um, sense of wonderment and awe and exploration, uh, confrontation. Um, and we're marrying that, yes, with, with good, solid psychological support. We could call that psychotherapy if you want. And it'll be there, it'll be there ahead of time to help prep and prime people for the right kind of attitude and uh, willingness to explore and go into the experience. Um, and then we have that psychological support to hold the individual, give them a sense of trust and safety in the experience itself um, and then have some aftercare which is giving space and time for yeah, integrating what's come up during the experience um, so that people can make sense of it start to plan healthy behavioral changes um, yeah so it's that combination and, and and the assumptions that we hold at the moment are that it's a synergistic combination not just additive. There's a bit of evidence out there that you get a bit of an additive improvement with, say, a course of SSRIs in depression plus some evidence-based psychotherapy like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, you'll, you'll get a slightly higher improvement bar or a slightly lower decrease in symptom severity bar if you add the two. It's an additive thing, a little bit more. Um, but with psychedelic therapy, you we're assuming, we're hypothesizing that you get a lot more when you put these two things in combination. Uh, and that's why we think it's potentially quite, quite a, you know, quite an advance on current treatments. Now, there's a lot more I could say about markers of, say, that plastic action. Uh, most of the markers that we think of in terms of neuroplasticity come from rodent work and um, sort of bench work, looking at cells in dishes and sometimes looking in living animals with optical imaging and so on. Very, very interesting, um, very important. The markers in humans are less nailed down. I can share that we have some promising markers, um, some functional in terms of changes in brain activity that we're now seeing can predict improvements in mental health outcomes downstream see the change in activity acutely under drug using recording devices like EEG. You see that effect and then the bigger the magnitude of that effect, the bigger the improvements in mental health outcomes downstream. That particular metric I'm referring to is a measure of signal complexity or entropy. It's the randomness um, or statistical complexity uh, of the signal across time and in space. So the more complex that signal, the richer that signal, the harder to predict that signal. 
the bigger the bigger is is the effect and that correlates with the intensity of the actual experience the bigger the trip um and now we're seeing also the bigger the improvements downstream uh, albeit in healthy volunteers so far and yes unpublished but a work in progress um i call that the entropic brain because um the signal complexity is more or less well it is synonymous with with entropy uh, in the informational or statistical sense as the um, it's easy to say random the, the randomness of the signal but uh, perhaps a better way more accurate way to say it is that we're uncertain about the signal or the phenomenon if it's more entropic it's harder to predict across space and time. In some sense, it's related to information as well, right? So yeah, how much information Because if you've got a, a single coin with, you know, two sides, that will give you very little potential information because it can only either be a heads or a tails. But if you have a system with a huge, you know, repertoire of potential states or substates, then the potential information that you can get from decoding that system is, is way faster than a simple coin with, with two sides. So yes, it, it's sort of, it's very closely related to the potential information that you could get. I think we've talked about this on a podcast before in relation to the idea of criticality too, that, um, that as you approach criticality, you're increasing the information and increasing, uh, and, and, uh, approaching more chaos, um, at that certain inflection point too. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the, the your your theoretical work on this, uh, Robin, is so interesting because it brings together these domains of complexity theory, uh, you know, these some of these neuroscientific measures, e.g. fMRI, uh, and then at the intersection of psychedelics and psychopathology. So it's it's bringing together a lot of really interesting, exciting pieces of uh of what's, you know, the current state yeah. of the art in neuroscience right now. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, you know, people have said that maybe information is sort of the most fundamental thing. You know, physicists have said this in the universe underneath, you know, matter or energy or is uh, at the most basic. It's, it's sort of information or, or you know, in, in, meaning in the statistical sense, bits of information. Yeah. And I, you know, just thinking about how in your work, uh, particularly your paper on uh, canalization and plasticity and psychopathology, you posit this notion of a single factor for psychopathology. In other words, that you can kind of uh, reduce down how mm. psychopathology develops mm. into a single factor. And it would be it would be great to hear from you, like how you think about that and how that relates to the action of psychedelics and mm. the entropic brain, as you, as you say. And, and it, you know, because I think it's maybe not obvious to someone coming from the outside that, you know, uh, increasing the entropy on it or you know the randomness or like complexity of of brain function mm. would actually lead to benefit. Maybe that sounds like something you might yeah. associate with actually a negative outcome, uh, but. That I think your theory uh, pulls it together in a, in a, a really well, interesting way. I hope way. so. I, I hope it's useful. Yeah, I mean, you think of an entropic mind or brain, uh, 
and uh, you might think psychosis you might think oh chaos in the mind and the brain that sounds like madness and I, I wouldn't walk that back I would say well it may well be that during an acute psychotic episode in a florid uh, psychotic episode you would see an increase in brain entropy yeah yeah but is is a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia always does it always look like that or does it often look like someone you know who's retreated from the world who's developed some fixed illusions who in a sense rather than being in a hot state is in a very cold state um and so it's very state specific psychotic disorders i think and and, and so yeah so so there's that something like depression is more obviously a, a cold state and yeah i am using the analogy of temperature here but it sort of works you know you get frozen in a substate again re retreat from the world um retreat from things that used to give some pleasure or um engage some interest and uh, and and sort of stuck um and this stuckness is is what's at the heart of this canalization idea where canalization was a term introduced to me through Carl Friston, um, the neuroscientist, and, and, um, and, and then I went down the rabbit hole of looking into this thing and um, found, you know, Comrade Waddington's work on, on energy, uh, on the epigenetic, uh, epigenetic landscape, where he presented this famous, now famous at least in science, um, Waddington landscape, uh, which looks like a kind of, you know, descending sort of mountainscape with valleys. And, and then you have balls that get stuck in the valleys. And that's, that's the canalization. But there's actually an even more interesting geeky history here where the origin is Henri Bergson of Elan Vital uh, and other, you know, interesting ideas who introduced the analogy of the canal. The canal is cut, is something cut into the earth where the dynamics in that system are all one way. There's no freedom. All the water's got to move in this particular direction enforced by the constraints. Now, um, it was Norman Whitehead, the philosopher, also talked about canalization, inspired by Henri Bergson. But Waddington picked it up in the context of, of um, genetics and epigenetics and, you know, phenotypic development, where it was basically saying, you know, properties of an organism, our phenotypes, can get stamped in into our genome in such a way that they don't change from, um, you know, generation to generation. We typically have, you know, two arms and two legs and, and uh, so on. Um, and that's an example of uh, certain properties that get canalized, that get stamped in. Canalization formally is uh, the inverse of plasticity. So rather than being the ability to be shaped or molded or to change, um, and how that is gonna interact with environmental pressures, where if you're very changeable or very malleable, what's happening in your environment is going to have a more exaggerated influence on you. That's plasticity. Canalization is a resistance to change. 
now things have become entrenched and stamped in where whatever happens in the environment, you're going to have two arms and two legs or what have you. Um, so I used that theme. And Carl put me onto it. I can't quite remember what the original seed was that he gave me. He certainly gave me the term to then go and look up. Um, but I could see that that could apply to psychopathology and a lot of it whether it's depression where you get stuck in a negative cognitive bias, you retreat from the world very generally, retreat into your head, um, or eating disorders, anorexia, the caloric control, you get stuck on, on that, obsessive about that, um, or addictions where you get stuck on some object of relief, a drug, um, for example, um, and there's craving for that thing. And so your repertoire of potential state space is now constrained into, I just need to gamble or get the drug or get a drink or, um, uh, to, let's see, obsessive compulsive disorder where these intrusive thoughts, I just need to clean my hands or, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's, it's compulsive um, to specific anxiety disorders. Um, you know, I guess social is quite general, but if it's a phobia, it's very specific. And so again, there's there's a constraining of the state space around whenever I encounter whatever it is, it's just an overwhelming, you know, terror. Um, so all these things are characterized in a sense by an overlearning, and, and this is a. a I think an important twist because, you know, when we're taught in, in neuroscience, we're often taught about the Hebbian plasticity, the associative plasticity and how it's the cornerstone of learning. And we tend to think, oh, well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. More of that. And, and we measure that. and We can measure that. We can show, you know, development in um, certain synaptic properties through this, these associative processes. But it's an interesting pivot to say that actually might be ill health in, in, you know, in, in terms of psychiatric disorders, where there's an excess, there's an overshoot of Hebbian mechanisms for whatever reasons, and we could go there. You know, why does it happen? Um, but I think it happens. And, and, and then we entrench in certain ways of thinking and behaving uh, and that becomes the problem. And that, that's the problem in, I would say, most of psychiatric disorder. Not all of it. You know, earlier on, we talked about the hot state of a florid psychotic episode. You know, there might be some other examples um, of exceptions to the rule. But, but, you know, all rules are rules. They're, they're models. They're not necessarily true, absolutely. They're just models that are designed to capture something, not everything. And so I think this that's what I proposed in that paper is that the principal component of mental illness is the entrenchment of certain ways of thinking and, and behaving, the canalization of, of thought and or behavior. Yeah. So that that's, you know, really intuitive, I think, from from my perspective, uh, you know, that you get stuck in certain ways of thinking, reacting to stimuli that become overlearned. We had uh, back in 2006, I think it was, uh, when we were doing cognitive training research, uh, Michael Mersnick and Henry Manka uh, 
and, and others, uh, including myself, wrote about negative plasticity. This idea that you can really is fundamentally a Hebbian type of learning, which for for those who aren't familiar with the idea uh, with Hebbian learning, it's basically the idea that when this associative learning in the nerve nervous system, when two neurons are active at the same time, they tend to become associated, you know, further associated in, in subsequent firing. So the, the, the colloquial phrase is yeah. neurons that fire together, wire together. So that, that's the so Hebbian process. The idea that through this process of what, what might be in a, a certain moment, a, a, a adaptive response over time gets rutted into your, into your, use your term, canalized into yeah. a negative overall response. And it becomes very difficult to dig your way out of that. And so our approach was to try to step by step through inverting that with positive plasticity, using more of a Hebbian approach, uh, more of a learning approach, try to dig your way out of that. And there's some interesting research in schizophrenia, for example, uh, using that approach, um, which has been shown to be somewhat effective. But the approach of psychedelics is rather different. Uh, And the plasticity that that is implied by that yeah. is, yeah. is is quite. Different. I guess you know, in in a psychotherapy like cognitive behavioral therapy, it might be something like you know weaken this bad association, strengthen this association, um, uh, and so it's still maybe somewhat somewhat Hebbian. You're trying to depotentiate the negative thing and potentiate a, a different positive thing. Like just say self-esteem, how to look at yourself, you know, depotentiate the negative way of looking at yourself and potentiate a positive way. I guess psychedelics are very generalized in their action on plasticity. It's it's a very generalized pro-plasticity effect is how I see it, where it's all about the potential for change. Uh, and then you realize uh, why it matters, what you twin with that window of elevated potential for change it's like essentially important so Um, this is i just so this is a great so this is a great point so the idea so just the pure idea that what psychedelics are doing is increasing um, plasticity what are the parameters around something like that because i don't think you would want to take um lsd and then go work on your tennis game right because there are there are probably certain things that that it's useful for ch- for changing for I don't know decanalization or whatever you would you know flattening out some of those canals or or you know reshaping that landscape a little bit, but um, also you know when you're if you're on LSD you're probably not in a state of mind to be changing just any random thing you know you're you know it's a very particular state um, so what are the parameters around plasticity here what what sorts of things is the mind ready to to change and, and yeah. learn? Well, it's a great question. I think, you know, the first thing to go to is dose. Um, and there it's possible, at least it's theoretically possible, that you could take a low dose and work on your tennis game mm, or some right. other habit. And, and I'm actually, sure that's the, that's the promise for, for my, people who are microdosing is the idea right. that you can gain some of this brain plasticity without without uh, being interfered with. uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, as a colleague of mine, Adam Ghazali had had said, it's like 
he used the analogy of steroids. You don't just take the steroids and expect to get big. You know, you take the steroids and twin it with the training. And it's a similar thing with microdosing. I, I think it, it then dawned on me that absolutely that's so true. It would be, it, it's sort of a training opportunity. And that, that's still theory. It hasn't been tested, but that, that's what rings true in my mind. You could take the low dose. The, the dose would be not so high that it knocks out function in a generalized way. And you get that generalized deficit confound where you mm. just can't function. Right, you're right, right. High, like you're yeah, tripping yeah. balls. Yeah. Yeah, but if it's a little bit, maybe you could feel more in your body when you do your golf or your tennis and start picking up on some of the skills that you were picking up on, but now with a little bit more malleability in the body and the mind and the learning apparatus. Uh, and so it's a very juicy idea. And let's see where where it goes. But uh, I would love to do a trial there. Of course, all these things are funding dependent. Um, and uh, I can't do that right now. But uh, someone should and, and will do a trial around microdosing and training. But thinking about, you know, you were talking about um, yeah. microdosing, but back to macrodosing in the context of a, a therapeutic setting, you have this model that you're talking about called TEMP. And it would be, I, I think it's very interesting, uh, you know, the relationship between, you know, taking a, a you know, moderate to high dose of psychedelics and how, and, and this notion of entropy, and then how that relates to mm this yeah. landscape, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this landscape that, and, and sort of yeah. flattening of that landscape. Yeah. And to call it temp was intentional because it, it sounds like short for temperature. And in fact, the T is temperature by entropy mediated plasticity. I think it is, uh, where it is, you know, using that analogy of like heating something up so that it, you, like you increase the, 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 the energy in, in the system such that you can go from say a solid state to a more liquid state. Uh, and that's the idea with, with the macrodosing, you know, it's a more dramatic uh, liquefying in a sense of, of the system such that everything's uncertain now, like even the very core um, uh, sort of model or assumption that we have in our minds during normal waking consciousness you know, as uh, exemplified by a use of the personal pronoun I, um, that starts to um, break down too, and that's ego dissolution. So in a sense, it all breaks down and everything is uncertain. And, you know, in that chaos, that's really capturing part of the essence of, of the psychedelic experience of these macrodose uh, ranges. And, and those are the doses that we're using in the psychedelic therapy. And sure, that sounds a bit like madness. That sounds like some kind of delirium. That doesn't sound nice and it doesn't sound good. I think often it's not nice. You know, these drugs aren't self-administered by animals. They, they're not classic hedonic drugs. People don't take them because they feel really good in some simple way. Like they generally feel good if they have a drink or, you know, they would have something like a stimulant or an opiate. Um, it has that sort of valence bias that it tends to feel good. I don't think so necessarily with psychedelics. I think they're quite valence nonspecific. And if anything, they're more aversive than hedonic as drugs. Um, but yeah, so that said, everything's breaking down. Everything's breaking down. 
and and there lies you know there there it starts opening up some uncertainty in my mind uh, to be honest about you know the next frontier in understanding action the entropic brain was characterizing that breakdown of stuff you know i introduced this thing called relaxed beliefs under psychedelics or rebus which is again about the breakdown of stuff it's about our confidence in our assumptions breaking down and, and it says that goes hand in hand with the entropic effect entropic effect happens and that looks like this drop in our confidence um you know and to use the the language of of um bayesian um inference it's the precision weighting of the priors which is a fancy way of saying something which is way more accessible it's our confidence in our beliefs um, and that confidence decreases so relax beliefs under psychedelics just a effort to make it more understandable to more people it's the same principle so these are break breaking down things you know but there's that very interesting question of is that all psychic the psychedelic state is um or as Carl Jung says it, you know, in all chaos, there is cosmos, uh, in all disorder, a secret, in all disorder, a secret order. You know, that's him being very poetic about his principle as things break down, stuff can come up. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, I don't think we'd call, we'd have a different name for these compounds than psychedelic, psyche revealing, if all it was was you know the breakdown of stuff it would be more like psyche you know um dissolving but we don't call them that you know so yeah the cosmos in the yeah. chaos is the thing that i'm i'm fascinated about uh, how we might capture that you know we measure i think we measure aspects of this in some subjective ratings um around things like psychological insight, uh, where scores on psychological insight rating scales now seem to predict improvements in mental health outcomes downstream. Um, but, you know, in the brain, in the dynamics of the brain, what what is that uh, cosmos? You know, what's that secret order that comes in uh, alongside the, the, the disorder? One, one thing that, that occurs to me as we're talking about this now is, um, you know, there's another analogy that we mm. sometimes use, which is like shaking the snow globe, which, you know, is that same mm. idea of like creating this chaos uh, in the brain and reducing your beliefs, making, you know, making manifest the notion that you don't really know what things like what you are, like what the world mm. is and what your relationship between you and the world. I mean, to me, that was... To the thing that when I discovered psychedelics and well, at least certainly when I did LSD for the first time, what I discovered about myself was that my understanding of the world yes. was mediated through my senses. Simple thing, you know, like uh, Newton says, the rays to speak properly are not colored. Uh, you know, Kant speaks about this as like, you know, mm. you can't know the thing in itself. Um, but that realization mm. was so imminent for me that it completely opened my mind to the world around me as being mm. to question my assumptions about the world around me and particularly the negative assumptions, but just in general made me more curious 
and open. So I wonder about the, this this concept mm-hmm. of openness to experience as being like a, a you know an opening. And this is something as I've been talking with a lot of people in interviews recently about their moves towards better um, mm. approaching mm. their mortality and thinking about that. This idea of, of being more open to the possibilities as being actually mm. profoundly comforting in a way. Um, and, and so maybe there's something in that as, as a, 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 yeah. a linking principle, you know, this, this idea of where, how it can, can tend to be positive, although we can obviously also see in this conversation mm. that it doesn't necessarily need to be positive, right? Mm. It can definitely be negative. Well, it's, there's yeah. a lot in that. It, yeah. it's, it's, there's so much, it's, it's hard to know now where to go. But uh, yeah, that principle of um, our experience of the world being generated, uh, you know, was it, where did that quote come from? Sorry, was it? Yeah, it was Newton. Uh, so Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, so I, I, my, my background is in color science yeah. and, and Rolf also did color perception. So we always yeah, uh, mean, go the, back to that the, one, but yeah. Yeah. Colors depend on our perceptual apparatus and the, yeah, I guess the wavelength of the light and all that kind of thing. It's uh, in, in and of itself, they don't have that intrinsic property. It's all dependent on the, how it's received by the perceptual apparatus. So, yeah. And there, you know, the hierarchical predictive processing model this model of the brain and the mind as uh, generating our experience of the world rather than receiving the world. We generate it actively. The so-called generative model um, is the same kind of thing. And another sort of simple way to put it is uh, that uh, in this handshake between world and brain, brain is dominating or the top down is dominating again to that principle that we're generating our experience of the world we don't realize it until that generative mechanism breaks down in some way and then when that happens it's like wow i didn't even know i was blind to that one you know talk about a blind spot and i guess that's the epistemic development or transformation that can come with psychedelics it's like it's like a knowledge that maybe you always knew but you were blind to and it's like insight through things coming down rather than things coming up like you know an earthquake knocking down occluding structure so that you can see more um so that might be a part of the clue as like you know the cosmos in the chaos it's like oh with things coming down, there's like a flattening and an opening up. There's an opening up now. Um, and, uh, you know, so I think, I think it, it may well be that. And, and then the opening up becomes, yes, it's a broader scope now. It's a broader scope now. It's less pinned down. We think of things like it's less entrenched. Um, and, uh, and it's more, it's, it's like a, an open playing field or a blank slate. Um, I mean, there is this intriguing thing, you know, I, I once heard it called by Dennis McKenna as the paradox of ego dissolution, <laughs> which is that, you know, these drugs, psychedelics can cause ego dissolution on the drug, but then it comes back with a vengeance. He was talking about like jumped up egos and, 
and um, that he was noticing actually in the psychedelic community, and uh, and so coined this term the the paradox of ego dissolution. I think it's quite good that you know. So so there's one system that while yeah sure it it breaks down under psychedelics dose dependently, um, and it's hard to find many interventions that can do that as robustly and reliably as psychedelics. Um, it's a lot of training and expertise to achieve that with meditation, for example. Um, but even with meditation, you know, Jack Cornfield says this nicely, uh, there are no enlightened people. I, there's one of his books, maybe after the ecstasy, the laundry, such a powerful statement that he opens the book. There are no enlightened people, only enlightened states. And I, so, so you can a- achieve that opening and the uh, cleansing of the doors of perception. But you come down mm. <laughs> and they come back. Temporary. You, better, you better watch out. Yeah. So, and I think that's especially true of, of the ego. Just recently, I was listening actually to a, a podcast by the Santa Fe Institute, the Complexity Science Institute there. Very good podcast. I think it's just finished. Um, uh, but uh, the host was uh, saying something very interesting about systems with memory and, uh, you know, systems with nodes that have a long memory or a deep memory are more stubborn and resistant to change. And it just made me think of the ego and... Uh, and the paradox of ego dissolution, that like that system is so deep. I tend to think that, you know, I think a bit anatomically about the ego as well. I think of like the neuroscientists will be able to follow me on this, like the default mode network into the limbic system, into the medial temporal regions. And like, that's a lot of the brain. And it's not just a lot of the brain in terms of brain mass in humans, but in evolution as well, that's like, yes, you know, human brain into mammalian brain. Uh, that's a deep system. That's a deep system. So to think you're going to change that thing, dissolve that thing, and it not come back, well, you start to realize, of course, it's going to come back and find find itself, you know. Um, and uh, maybe we should be glad <laughs> that, it, that it does, and, it, and, you know, otherwise, what are we left with? Maybe it, it's it's not sustainable, it's not healthy to inhabit a state of like permanent ego dissolution or something. That does sound horrible. It does sound horrible to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we, Rolf and I have yeah an ongoing discussion about uh, about this, uh, our, our views on our own right. ego and, and, and whether we'd like it or not. <laughs> not I'm, I'm all for ego I want to keep my ego. And, and getting rid of it. But, but, uh, but Rolf I has really appreciate my ego with his. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think this gets into a couple other very interesting directions, uh, both related to how psychedelics are impactful mm-hmm. in the treatment of psychopathology. Uh, one is, I, th- I think it's just not really mentioned much in the literature, which is how much prior experience a person has with psychedelics and how mm-hmm. efficacious the therapy will be. Oh, Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I could think to some naturalistic research we've done where we we use prospective surveying, so like just online questionnaires to track people before and after psychedelic use. And when we've done that, we have found that experienced people tend to have nicer trips, more positive trips. Uh, 
in terms of improvement, it's tricky because you get this ceiling effect where, you know, there's less scope for for improvement if someone's well-being is already high. But we have found that they have more positive trips, more experienced people. So I don't know. Um, we have done studies in entirely psychedelic, naive, naive people. Um, we have seen... Yes, we see some challenging experiences, but we have seen the big improvements in, in mental health outcomes. And actually, we've also seen some brain changes that are really exciting, um, even anatomic, potential anatomical brain changes, uh, which would be quite remarkable. And that's a, a draft that we're working on at the moment. Paper's gone through review, major revisions. We're coming out the other side, uh, feeling good about it. Um, they, they could be microstructural changes in the white matter, in the cabling of the brain that happen after your first ever psychedelic experience, mm. high-dose psychedelic experience. Um, so, um, yeah, the I guess the naive brain and mind is, is fresher, um, maybe more sensitive to the impact of, of psychedelics. Well, I think it also speaks to like this idea that we were just talking about of if there's this insight that your your is this veil is lifted now you can see mm. something real about the world that you didn't know before. Once you've seen it, yeah. now you know it. And like, and, and you know, so you know, you talk about Roland Griffith's work and his finding mm. that this is the most one of the most impactful experiences of someone's life, mm. uh, most mm. impactful spiritual experiences of one's life. That's not going to, I, I just, I would posit that that's not going to be the case the 12th yeah. time they do it. Yeah. M maybe they might inch up a rank if it was a really big experience, <laughs> but, but yeah, sure. There's less scope. Right, right, there is right. absolutely less scope. And it, you know, it reminds me of the Alan Watts statement. Once you get the message, hang up the phone. And yeah, the thing is you do forget, and this comes yeah. in, in, in spiritual practice as well. Like you might, you might hit something like a, you know, enlightenment-like state um, with some profound meditation and some insights. But it, then you go back to ordinary samsara, you know, waking consciousness and start falling into the old patterns and, and so on. So even though, sure, you might have the vision, it is very easy to forget. Um, you know, people talk, in spiritual practice, it's more obvious that it requires a practice for the sustaining for the maintenance yeah. of the healthy changes or realizations that have come about through the experience. I have heard that term used in the context of psychedelics as well as psychedelic practice. I guess the danger is that becomes psychedelic abuse or overuse, but it doesn't have to, you know, it, it might just be quite sparing use of psychedelics when you fall into that forgetting state or let's put it into the more concrete space of psychopathology, you know, when you relapse into, say, depression or back to the addiction, you know, it then makes sense to, in a sense, have the reminder of another psychedelic therapy session. Uh, yeah, but I think we're sort of, we're sort of orbiting around this principle of, of uh, which maybe takes us full circle back to psychedelic and and the definition psyche revealing that there's something of this action and of this therapeutic action when it's psychedelic therapy that is in 
that could be characterized as epistemic, like it's an understanding, it's a knowledge thing. Um, and that's maybe where the benefit um, rests. Yeah. And then I guess the other related question then is around therapy. So, you know, there, we often talk about this idea of set and setting. Uh, and then, of course, within the context of a lot of these studies, there will be one or two uh, therapists uh, present during a dosing, and there will be, uh, you know, some kind of a therapeutic process associated with that. How do you think about that process in terms of, I mean, in some ways, if we think about the science of psychedelics as, you know, a psychological intervention, you know, we, there's certainly there's work to be done on the the molecules themselves. And there is a lot of work being done there, but it seems like a much uh, easier place to start, if you will, or yeah, I mean, another place to start would be what, how can, can we optimize the therapies and, and does your work or your theorizing give you any directional sense of, of uh, where to take that? It's a, a great point. And th- there are some ideas uh, that we'll explore um, and it brings in some of the practical considerations in a sense, you know, the, the harsh reality of, of um, medical interventions um, and the medical system. Uh, and even more concretely, you know, the cost, the cost of, of medical care, because mm. we could imagine a kind of four seasons model where, yeah, you get the drug, but on top of the drug, you you overlay this like paradisical scenario, of, like, I don't know, whatever it is, the most heavenly sort of context that just uh, is really enriched and is and not just there for the session, but extended in time. And you can have as many interventions as you want and as much psychotherapy as you want. But, you know, that's really the private payer model. That's the Four Seasons model that most people can't afford and can only dream about. Um, And uh, that's the harsh reality here, because in healthcare systems, whether it's um, an insurance-based one or a public healthcare system, you have someone's got to foot the bill. Someone's got to pay for the treatment. And uh, and so the treatment has to be affordable enough. Otherwise, they, they ain't going to cover it. And that's the reality. Like Insurers won't cover psychedelic therapy. That's a very real concern at the moment. So, you know, all, all the work could be done by your maps or your compass or your sonar or what have you. They get a license and then insurance companies don't cover it because they just can't see how the sums can work up to make this affordable and coverable. Um, whereas SSRIs are really cheap uh, and, um, yeah, easy to, to cover the cost of those. You don't need any psychotherapy. You don't need any professional staff time. So it's a, it's a real reality bite for this space. And what do you do with that? So, sure, you can get creative and think of the Four Seasons model. And uh, I've been doing that with some colleagues at UCSF, more specifically Neuroscape, likes of Adam Ghazali. We developed this really exciting uh, nature immersion um, project with Louis Schwartzberg Mm. and his amazing nature footage. And then East Forest and his beautiful uh, nature-inspired music and sounds. And that combination is really beautiful. And yeah, we, you know, that... That doesn't have to be expensive. It's an audio visual thing that you can deliver through some medium, you know, 
a decent enough sound system. But that's only going to be, you know, say at the start and at the end of a psychedelic experience. But uh, let's see now. Because of the cost and the harsh reality, technology could come in to help us there. And, and this, is, this is where there's a really interesting tension going forwards, which is that the purists, and I know this having had a bit of a background in psychoanalysis, you know, uh, proponents of psychoanalysis think that we all need, you know, maybe we do, I don't know, need is a strong word, but, you know, regular psycho, uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy for many years to be a, you know, well enough functioning human being. But of course, very, very few people can afford that luxury. So we don't have that. Instead, within a medical system, we have six weeks of CBT, you know. Um, and even that is a, a bit challenging to roll out at any scale and, and make available to, to large numbers of people. Hence, there's often long waiting lists to have even that kind of evidence-based psychotherapy through your insurance or through um, a public health care system. So we've got a challenge here, and how could tech uh, help us? Well, you know, I think there are some daring, daring creative ideas around things like, like machine learning and um, and VR um, and providing an alternative to, I guess, an expensive human being and and their many hours. Um, and this is where we're going. This is where we are going, whether we like it or not. You know, it's similar with, say, vehicles. I mean, in terms of self-driving cars, they could massively improve road safety uh, matters. You know, deaths and accidents on the road. But the the thought of all the vehicles on the road being essentially like machine-driven or robot-driven. Is, is very frightening for many people. But is there space for some kind of, you know, machine intelligence um, coming into the psychotherapy space to help us out in terms of the cost of, of uh, the cost problem with psychedelic therapy going forward? I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, the other, <laughs> the other piece of psychedelic therapy cost has to do with, you know, in the model that is being developed now, is that it is being done in a medical setting and this, the setting itself is expensive. Uh, you know, so like, for example, a therapist, you know, depending on what kind of therapist it is, maybe not that expensive actually, you know, like mm. compared to other things that, that we're doing, but if you do it, especially in a hospital or even in a, you know, in that kind of a setting, and then you've got all the constraints around that. Yeah. Then it, that, yeah. That is, very that is part of it. But um, then, you know, these, places for healthcare do, do exist and it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be expensive for them to retrofit around psychedelic therapy. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you still go to a hospital or a clinic to, I don't know, have a vaccine or um, have a lot of. Yeah. I guess what, where I'm going is you, you've, you've got this approach that's being done more underground, which is, you know, especially, you know, group-based, um, you know, kind of experiences where people come together around a ceremony and, you know, that is still not 
cheap, but it's potentially considerably yeah, cheaper. I just wonder expensive. in a regulated system whether you could have that, but you still go to a licensed place. It's just within a regulated mm -hmm. system, you're, you bring in the regulations because you want a safeguard. Um, and the checks and balances can be, you can feel more confident about them. And they're not going to be watertight and things can still go awry and there can be bad practice. But at least you have the regulation, you can be, you know, struck off as a provider. Um, there is some oversight of this. Otherwise, if you leave it to Wild West, I think it's quite reasonable to expect that there'll be more cases of, of sort of bad practice. And, and um, so the take-home psychedelic model is a very, very challenging one um, in terms of thinking how that could really happen in, in a system at scale. Um, I am a little skeptical that that's a real possibility going forward. But people who think that that's the way we need to go with this intervention are the ones who are thinking of stripping away the trip. Um, uh, let's see how successful they're going to be. Uh, I'm a little skeptical on that, um, both for its efficacy and even if they get the efficacy, is there still a bit of the trip? Is that really going to be safe to take? Oh, I, yeah, and are there subtleties around microdosing and if you think you could strip away any kind of care. Earlier on, we were talking of like my, microdosing time, some kind of training. So can you actually get around the fact that you still need to twin the drug with something to get the right kind of safety and, and efficacy or benefit? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, as you're talking about that, it makes me think, you know, CBT, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be quite um, uh, manualized uh, and delivered, you know, with an app, for example, uh, maybe, you know, an interesting twin for for a, yeah. an ongoing kind of therapy. Yeah. And of course, you know, at lower you dose, know, in recent years, you know, catalyzed by the pandemic, we we have this now. You know, we do so much of our communication remotely, and so maybe some kind of video type therapy uh, could could be could be a, another workaround. I think there'll be a lot of these kind of compromises um, where, um, yeah, it might not be the extreme of take-home psychedelics or certainly not take-home macrodose psychedelics. People will still do that anyway. They'll, you know, they'll skirt around the system and do what they want to do as they're doing right now. Um, but at any kind of scale within any, within any kind of structured system, I don't see that happening easily. Uh, unless people go around the system. Well, we want to be mindful of your time here, and we've been talking for quite a while, which has been fantastic. Um, but I want to make sure that we uh, get to a question that we usually ask our guests, which is, what are you excited about? What's what's coming up down the pike that you're excited to see, um, experiment-wise or regulation-wise or, or anything? Sure. Um, well, I'm excited about a lot. Um, I've uh, got a few exciting things going on. I've just launched my lab uh, and a website for it, carhartharrislab.com. Nice to get that out. It's something I felt I had to do for a while. Um, so it's not the best website in the world, uh. but it's something. And uh, I'll get a bit of help and, and I'll improve it and move 
watch the content. It's very informative. I've been on it. It's super oh, informative. Well, I, I like that I put these harm reduction videos on there. You know, for another project, I created those a few years ago, and um, a couple of years ago at least, and they hadn't got into the public domain, so I'm pleased to have got them in. And knowing that psychedelics, you know, do you care? Do you want to say? Do you want to say something about the harm reduction videos? Yeah, they're, they're intended as sort of psychoeducation around psychedelics. And uh, knowing that some tragic cases have happened recently with people um, procuring psychedelics um, themselves, you know, illegally, having experiences, getting into trouble, sometimes tragic cases, loss of life and, and, yeah, and suicide as a cause. It really, really tragic. So learning of some of these cases and then just thinking these these could have been avoided um, with better education. Um, that was a strong motivation to just get these things out, um, even though it's vulnerable when you stick yourself out there. You know, some people could easily be like, oh, what? why is he an expert on that? You know, I thought he was a neuroscientist. There's, there's different things like that. And so I don't want to overclaim on on the videos. Most of it's borrowed from other people. Um, you know, whether psychedelic therapists like Bill Richards mentored um, me early on, and, and our team doing the depression work, and then um, uh, I've had other mentorship as well. And then just borrowing from like wise people in spiritual practice. There's a lot of Thich Nhat Han in there, and Jack Cornfield, uh, Stephen Batchelor. Um, sort of secular, um, I guess, with with the exception of those who are a little bit more religious, maybe with their Buddhism. It's generally quite secular, um, yeah, but, and 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 sort of wisdom teachings inspired. So so it's there. It's it's you know take it or leave it. I don't overclaim. It's just there, and and maybe it could be helpful for some um, people who want to learn about psychedelics and how how to um, mitigate. We'll certainly put some links up on this on with the show notes for that. Thanks. Uh, That's great. Thank you. Yeah. And I just uh, completed a book proposal, which is going out um, just signed this morning for that, which is nice. Um, On some of my theoretical work on psychedelics and mental health, the canalization model, more or less everything is going to be, I'm going to try and condense it into this book and, (laughs) Oh, we'll be on the lookout for that. Cool. It's probably a few years away from actually publishing and being out there for the, for the world, but it's happening. Um, and the other things, well, I'm doing a study now, dosing people, deep fMRI study. What, what does that mean? It means doing a lot of scanning within the same person and not a lot of people, but going deep within given individuals, deep fMRI. Um, um, we call it insight two. There was an insight one. So there's a giveaway there in that we're interested in the mechanisms of insight. Uh, um, and we're trying to capture substates that arise within a psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience was never one thing. Um, you know, it's, it has many different faces and some quite starkly different faces as, you know, captured by you know, the doors of perception, heaven and hell, (laughs) you know. Um, So this could be quite an advance. As things stand right now, we don't have have a handle on questions like, what's a bad trip? You know, what's going on in your brain and body 
when you're having one of those compared to like surfing heaven on a psychedelic. So I'm excited about that. I've also recently, just yesterday, connected with someone who's created a a sort of large language type model for fMRI data, Brain LM. It's only just come out as a preprint, but I've reached out and uh, I'm excited about having that call to see if we can use that uh, training essentially to scrutinize our psychedelic data and to see what it'll say or see when it looks at those data. It may well say, I suspect, this is weird. <laughs> I'm not used to this. <laughs> this is novel. I actually, you know, I felt that that's a thing that will come to for a, a while. You know, psychiatry embraced psychedelics in this so-called renaissance of the last couple of decades, psychedelic renaissance. Psychiatry was pretty quick on picking up on this and publishing in, in top medical journals. Cognitive neuroscience has been slower um, for whatever reason. Um, uh, but I think what might change things is will be the novelty of the action, you know, in a sense, the novelty of the data. Once people start realizing that you see things under psychedelics that are really unusual, you don't typically see that in human brain function. I think that's where there'll be a pivot and there'll be even more interest in, in uh, the scientific community and psychedelics as scientific tools. And they'll start to realize why they're so important in consciousness science, for example. Um, so yeah, excited about that study. Another study that, um, it's underfunded, but it's an ambitious study to test the assumption that I was talking about earlier, that psychedelic therapy is a, is a synergistic thing. It's more than the sum of the parts. Um, and so to test that, you need a certain kind of design that will test for the synergy. Uh, and more specifically, you need, you need four arms. You need to control for drug, drug versus placebo. And you need to control for, in a sense, the therapy, therapy, no therapy, or enriched, unenriched, enriched set and setting, unenriched set and setting. So you need those components to show that when you, you add in the drug and the enriched, it's a sort of multiplicative additive effect. It's a big change on drug versus enriched versus unenriched, whereas on placebo, it's more or less kind of the same, not much change. So... To do that, you need big numbers, and unfortunately, it's expensive, and, and we've got work to do there. But that's a good way through the approval process, so it's fast-tracked. We'd be able to start quite soon, but, yeah, we need to raise some money to do it. Um, so these things excite me. I love being at UCSF. It's ideal for me now. I love living in the Bay Area. So, uh, yeah, life's pretty good, to be honest. Yeah, I'm very lucky. Well, Robin Carhart-Harris, thanks so much for joining us here. It's been a great conversation. We appreciate you spending so much time with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Just a brief pause to say that if you're enjoying the podcast, please spread the word to your friends. 
and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever you're listening on, you can contact us at cognationpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can check out our new YouTube channel. Just look up Cognation on YouTube. Thanks for listening.